0: And after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings and sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, and abiding one. are destroyed but of those who have faith and persevere their souls Uh, pray with me father we thank you for this morning i thank you for the time of worship and song thank you for uh, the way that you have gifted uh, writers and artists to to bring words together to magnify and draw our hearts to uh, to gaze upon our savior thank you for that And Lord, we pray even now this morning as we continue to worship you with our minds and our hearts and our submission, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I've had a rough way of starting this sermon, uh, many different ideas. But let me just uh, tell you a story of a gentleman in England named Charles. You may recall him. Uh, a very interesting figure. I know very little about his life other than some of the things which he suffered. Is this messing up, guys? It's going up and down, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, so he was saved in Cambridge at 19. It was in 1779. With several years, he became a pastor. Uh, and he worked in the church or in the, in the college there as uh, a professor the interesting thing about him, as he served in his college, that it was a godless place at that time. One of the only Christians there, he was despised by his uh, by his colleagues. They they looked down upon him. They abused him. They, they belittled him. They mocked him. All the things that he went through, and, and to add to that, the students themselves uh, they they come in on the festivities of of persecuting this this man who. Was standing strong in his faith for Christ, and many of the students would uh, cause a ruckus outside of the church and during church services to uh, to to disrupt the thing and, and try to bring an end to it. I'm going to take this off, guys. If you don't, you don't mind. <laughs> But to add to the suffering that he faced from the place of his vocation was the fact that he began pastoring a church which wouldn't even let him preach the main service for 12 years. Quite interesting as I was reading that and thinking about that, I was thinking about when I got here and we unloaded the U-Haul and I was sitting there in the house and I didn't know what to do. No one told me what to do and so I finally made my way over to my neighbor's house and I told Ed, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want you to preach and that's all. Well, could you imagine being a pastor of a church and wouldn't even let you preach? And so he began preaching the, the early morning service, which was, you know, just a few stragglers come along the way, the super religious or whatever it may be. And and they didn't like it so much that at times they would lock the doors so he couldn't get his way in. Well, then he'd find his way in the building and then they would lock the pews. They had little doors and some kind of un ungodly and uncomfortable pews that they used to sit in thank god we, we should just pray now and thank god for where you're at <laughs> and so they would lock the pews they wouldn't come to hear uh, charles preach and and not only would they not come to hear it they would lock the pews so whoever came to hear it would have to hear it standing up that would be great wouldn't it and some of you think yeah just that's that's enough let's sit down uh, he would at times bring chairs out and they would take the chairs, the custodians and those people that were against him, they would take the chairs and put them out in the yard. He faced this not just a year or two. In fact, the, the, the pastor that had been rejected by the Anglican church to be their pastor was the very one they allowed preach every Sunday evening. And, and they did that for five years. Then the guy went off. Well, after five years, naturally, the church brought in someone else instead of Charles Simeon to preach the evening service for another seven years. Twelve years, the man went through this. Twelve years, he remained. And in fact, he stayed at that church for some 50 years, pastoring and ministering to that congregation that despised him. Well, he reminds us of what we already know. Uh, at times we picture the, the offer of salvation, the, the preaching of the gospel is kind of a, a calmer journey, a, a smooth sailing ride to glory. In fact, some, depending on what TV station you turn on, well, exactly that's the gospel that they preach. Not just uh, smooth sailing, but one that is filled with all sorts of good things like prosperity and health and, and, and all the other things that they offer you. And it is true that God gives his people rest in times of enjoyment, in times in which we, we really grow and, and thrive and, and relax and enjoy the things that he gives us. But it's also true that God gives us other times as well. The church at Hebrews reminds us of a church that we find in Thessalonians. They were birthed into affliction and out of affliction birth out of and into affliction. It is our reminder that as we await the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there will be in this life trials and tribulations, and there will always be a need to be encouraged because we always will carry burdens and things that are too great for us to bear alone. And some of you know that right now in your own life. And so he gives this church a word of encouragement, I, just a word which uh, really brings me to admiration of Charles Simeon when asked uh, later on in his life how he withstood all the things that he faced. There's so much more I will not get into, but, but he made this statement and he says, my dear brothers, we must not mind a little suffering. That's kind of the word, I think, of the writer of Hebrews here. How do we live this life and, and endure all the things that we endure in a way in which we, uh, we only mind a little bit of suffering? How we get through it in the way in which we can honor God? Well, he tells us here in the passage in front of us in Hebrews chapter number 10. He, he lets us know first how... We can get through this, but secondly, why? But I want to turn those around. I want to talk about why we need to endure suffering. You find that in verse 36 and 37. Then I want to look at how we can endure hardships and tribulations. First of all, why? Why should we endure these things? Look at with me, verse 36. He says, for you have need of endurance. Now, that's the exhortation to them. He's saying, this is what you need. This is what you need to exercise or display in your life. This is what you need to, to carry out. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. I would say, first of all, the reason we need to endure a little suffering, if we were going to answer this out and, and kind of write a list for us at the top of that would be the very fact that Jesus is coming back. Jesus will return. A couple of our men went to ABF earlier this month and I was greeted by a guy at the door who just, I mean, it's almost like he he punched me with a statement. You know how someone says it's just out of the blue, not expecting it. You introduce yourself and your name and and instead of that being reciprocated to you, their name and where they're from he just simply said jesus is coming back i know some of you are more quick-witted than i am and and you can deal with that a lot quicker and say a lot better things and more elaborate things than i can say but all i could say at that statement to me just taking me off guard is yeah that's true (laughs) That's profound isn't it (laughs) just to go to show you it, it sometimes it takes me a little while to catch up to the conversation but really, throughout the church history, throughout Christian uh, Christianity, that has been one of the tenets of the faith, that we believe that Jesus Christ will come back, the, the bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not an idea, not a spirit, not a, not, a, not a notion, not any of those things. We believe that Christ will bodily, physically come back. There will be a second coming. In fact, so, uh, so fixed is this in our understanding and in all of Scripture that, that it is what the world is moving towards. The providence of God in, in your life and in my life, and the life of the world and of the nations and the events, all that we see and all the chaos, that seems, out of control is moving towards this one great defining event, the return of Jesus Christ. He will come back. Promised his disciples in John chapter number 14. I'm going away. And, and naturally if I'm going away. We might think well you're abandoning us. And he says no that's not the case. If I go away will I not surely come back. The angels to the apostles and Acts. As they open this up and they're gazing. Jesus ascending into heaven. And the angel says what are you doing? Didn't you hear him? The same one who's ascended will come back in like manner. Peter and Paul and, and over and over, all of the New Testament writers remind us, John the, uh, John in his letter, 1 John, all tell us to, to anticipate, think, and, and look forward to this one great main event that Jesus will return. Uh, and I don't know about you, in the skeptical uh, nature of our age and the chaos in which we think of, that it tends to be one of the truths that we forget, But I want to remind you this morning, as the writer reminds us in verse 37, yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay. He will come. Jesus will return. Why do we endure? Because we are moving towards that one great event of the return of the Lord. He will come back. We are meant to look up. The providence in our lives, the trials which we face, the burdens, all of those things tends to have that effect on us, to cause us to look beyond the pain, to something in front of us. And that is what the Bible calls that blessed hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the writer has already been talking about this in, in two fashions. We've seen last week in this judgment of God earlier that he will repay and and vengeance is here. It is in verse number 30 and verse number 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The return of the Lord, there's a lot that, that goes into that. I understand that's not the, the subject of our morning. But, but we can say that one of, the, one of the most important realities of the return of the Lord is that he will come back to judge his enemies. You see that in Revelation chapter number 19 and verse number 11. He says, And then I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself, and is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which is called is the Word of God. His armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no equal. When he comes to make war it is not a battle at all. The armies of the earth and the nations collect them all together, they are but dust compared to him. He will come to make war with his enemies. That's Psalms 2, isn't it? That he will will come and dash them into pieces with a rod of iron. We we see that even mentioned in our text, not only in verse number 30 and 31, he speaks about it earlier in the chapter as as he tells us that Verse number 13 of chapter 10. Waiting from that time, speaking of Christ being uh, seated at the right hand of the Father. Waiting until that time his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. There's a whole warning that we looked at last week. That Christ will come back and judge his enemies, his adversaries. He will judge the apostate and the unbelieving. He will judge those who, who walk in uh, unrighteousness and who walk in violence as uh, the bible tells us in psalms 11 that he is angry with the wicked and he that loves violence his soul hates them the bible says we read and we we may say in our own mind in our western mind the way we think about life and think about ourselves well that well that is true he will come to judge wicked people Those whom we don't like and those in other countries and those who worship Baal and those who worship Allah. He will come to judge those. But but he goes further to tell us the reality and the far scope of his judgment that those names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will bear the weight of his judgment and eternal damnation forever and ever. No one outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ will stand under the weight of his judgment. It's a reminder that those, even those who stand confident, and he'll speak of confidence in a minute, those who stand confident in their their own religion, in their own good works, in in their own way of getting there, will have no place to stand on that day in his return. He will come and make all wrongs right. No wonder the writer says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That, that Christ will return. We persevere because he will come back and he will set all wrongs right. But there's more that's going to take place at the return of Christ that he points us to. We see that even in verse number 35. He says, um, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There is this this joy, this anticipation which we have at the second coming of Christ. the the I know there's differences in way of interpreting that, but he's saying that he will come back and it is a time of great joy. How can it be both? It's interesting, isn't it? Well, he says in verse number 28 of chapter number 9, speaking of the return of Christ. Look at it with me. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but what? To save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. The return of Christ, him coming back, that, that message for, for those who have received him, for those who are eagerly waiting for him, it is a message of hope. He says he is coming to save them, deliver them. There's something to anticipate that, that goes beyond what we've experienced of Jesus even at this moment. He will come to deliver us from his wrath. He will come to deliver us from condemnation. We are now, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He is coming to save us. It's a joyful anticipation. Why do we endure? Because we are waiting that moment when Christ will return, when our salvation, all that he has promised us will be made sight, brought to sight. Now, dear friends, you and I both know, most of us know, I think anyways, that as even Doug prayed this morning, opening the service up, that that was every one of us were, by nature, children of wrath. No one in their own merit or in their own strength or in their own right had had the audacity to look at the return of Christ with joy without the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's why he gave us the gospel. To give us hope, to take that which put us at enmity with God, that which caused us to be an an enemy and caused us to live in our wickedness and vileness, to take that and to cover it by his own precious blood, to cleanse us from those things. So that which once we dread and that which once was a fearful anticipation for us is now the, the hope which we look forward to. Why do we endure? Why is there a need for endurance? Because, beloved, Christ is going to come back. And that is where our hope is set. That is where our hope is set. The return of the Lord. Colossians saying, set your affections on those things that are above, not on things that are up. Because when Christ appears, your life will appear with him. But Not only does he explain that in our context, that we endure because of the return of Christ, but we endure because life is hard. There's a call for it. There's a call for endurance. Jesus never promised you and I a life free from suffering and burdens and trials. In fact, he says, if you would follow me, there's a cross to bear. There's a cost to pay. If you would be my disciples, then you must bear your cross, deny yourself. You must... You, you see this kind of terminology in the world you will have tribulation the, the, the church has experienced the suffering and the pain of that and you and i have seen the discomfort of it in some way or another haven't we why does he call us to endure because there's a need for it we we are living in the now but we also endure because it's consistent it is most consistent with the eternal work of salvation he goes on and says, You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what, what is promised. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. There is that, that consistency as we continue on in faith, believing and trusting God in our opposition. It reminds us of the nature and the character of God. That he doesn't change. It doesn't matter what you're facing. And it doesn't matter what we go through in this life. God never changes. His word is still the same. It was the same when things were going great in your life. And, and, and everything was hunky-dory. I guess that's a terminology, right? Does everyone know what that means? And can I say his word didn't change because things are awful and ugly? You know, his word is the same. His promises is the same. His sustaining grace is the same. And and, and it's a reminder to us that we persevere because it is most consistent with the nature of God and the nature of our salvation. Even here in the language, when we may ourselves prove not to be his disciples. But being his disciple, he will never prove to be anything other than your Savior and your Lord. He remains faithful. Now let me just give you a few things as concerning how we are to endure as he mentions here. And I would like to mention first of that we endure. We endure by our drawing near to God looking back in the first few verses of this in verse 19 with me. Verse 22, we endure by drawing near with a true heart unto God. We we endure by holding fast our confession. Verse 23, and we endure by our continual gathering, meeting together, encouraging, provoking one another. Verse 24, and he adds to this two things uh, that I think are helpful. He begins this uh, verse number 32 with remember, remember. In the Old Testament, there were several uh, markers and you see it at the beginning of verse 32, but recall in the former days, and, and you see many places in our Bibles where the, God gives us things to draw our attention, to, to stir our memories, to remind us of his work. And many of the feasts were remembrances of God's saving, redemptive act of the children of Israel coming out of the wilderness and out of Egypt. The Feast of Booths was a time where they were to celebrate God's provision as they lived in tents in the wilderness wandering. The Passover was a reminder of God's miraculous provision of a way way through his judgment or during his time of judgment. His deliverance with a strong arm out of Egypt as they considered that Passover lamb. Over and over the people were to be reminded of God's deliverance. I think it's true. Even in Joshua, as he's leading the children over into Canaan land, he says, "Take twelve stones and and build a build a memorial, memorial, whatever that word is, uh, for your children, so that they will know what you did." In fact, we as a church have, been, in this year, several different times, have talked about God's faithfulness for thirty years. Remember what God has done. Remember your past. Remember your history. Well, he's saying the same thing to these Christians in verse uh, 32 through 34. I want you to think back. I want you to, to be taught by your own past, to be challenged and corrected by what God has done in your life. That's really what he's saying, that, that, that look at the zeal in which you served God, and look at the way in which you served one another, and, and look at the joy you experienced which you cannot explain, and, Neither can I. Look at it with me in verse number 32. He says in this remembrance, look at the cost you paid for your affiliation with Christ. He says the former days after you were enlightened. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes to the gospel. You were blind as, as the illustration says. And the spirit comes on at the sharing and the preaching of the gospel. And opens our eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. And they were enlightened. He says after that. Well, it doesn't say in my Bible that everything went well. But he says you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. But to be affiliated with Jesus Christ brought about a, a, a kind of suffering and the terminology here this this enduring and, and this struggling with suffering is that of, of a wrestling or gymnasium or athletic term it was it was a workout it was hard it was difficult it was it was something that they went through and he says it was all because you affiliated with Jesus Christ. All because you says I I follow him, I'm I'm baptized into him, I'm a part of him, this is who I'm, I'm with, this is my Savior, this is my Lord, this is the Messiah. And it says because of all of this, you endured. Isn't that remarkable? The very thing that they na- needed. He's saying, Look back, you remember you did do that. You're living in a time that is difficult and hard and, and all that's going on in, in, in your life. And and yet, if you just look back and you see God's grace, didn't he sustain you? Did not you go through something like this before? This is not the first time you've paid a cost for following us through Christ. This is not the first time you felt the weight of being identified with him. This is not the first burden which you carried or the first struggle which you've went through. You've been through one before. You've struggled with it. It's, it's something that you're familiar with. And he goes on. Not only did you count the cost of this, and some date this back to, for those of you who like history, maybe Claudius in A.D. 49, the expulsion of the Jews from Rome because, of, um, because the Jews were fighting among each other. And some say that is due to Jews being saved, coming to Christ, saying Jesus is my Messiah. And, and naturally, that didn't go well. Many of the Jews and that day was, was, they were against him. Christ was a stumbling block for them, the Bible tells us. And, and, and so during this time and, and all of this going on, there was an expulsion from Rome. And, and many of the brothers and sisters in Christ had, had suffered under that. But he's pointing, you endured it. You endured it. With great zeal, we see this kind of terminology being given to us. And you might wonder about the burden that you're going through right now. I know some of you are. And can I just say this by just word of a practical implication? This is not the first thing that you faced with Christ. This is not the first difficulty in life. And I would say just go on with that as he has been faithful in those things, will he not also be faithful now? As you endured then, then, as you were held up and strengthened in those times, will he not uphold you now and strengthen you in what you go through? And in the fear of the world, we say it's never been like this. There's, there's never been anything, anything like what we face. And hasn't God been faithful throughout the years before? We, we can look beyond our life and look throughout church history and see God's faithfulness. And sometimes we feel like when we get to a place of in tribulations in our life, it's never been like this. And maybe it hasn't been exactly like this. But you have suffered and you have went through things, and God has been faithful then. You endured then. Well, oh, beloved, you can endure now. You can trust now. You can carry on now. That's simply what he's saying here. You did this once, you can do it now. You or public shame for your faith in verse number thirty-three. Sometimes being public exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who are so treated. The word here is you—you you were an open, you were an open spectacle, a theater, if you will. And he says they—they they were just watching you as you were going through this. Look at the silly little Christians believing in the Messiah. Look at how they're going. Look at look at how they respond. Look at how weak they are. They got a suffering ser- savior. They got one who is beaten and put to death. Who serves a God like that? Hey, honestly, when we talk about words like that, it almost feels like blasphemy. Well, it's because it is all for the world to see. Brought to shame, made a laughing stock, a spectacle for all to to jeer at. And and I just want to remind you that Jesus. In his nakedness, lent himself to the voices and the tongue of the wicked as they jeered at him and mocked him, and he became the blunt of many, many jokes. Oh, God could save others. Let God save him, or he could save himself. Let him, he could save others. Let him save himself. Over and over, ridiculing the world. And, and, and Jesus reminds his disciples, You know better than me. If they hated me, they will hate you. And because of this that they would went through, not only did they face suffering and shame in their past and call extremist and crazy, hateful, out of date. No, wait, that's what they call us, isn't it? And he said, yeah, but you faced it. You faced it. But not only did you face it with such... that you associated with those who were treated that way. Those are my people. Uh, uh, Those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he says at the end of verse number 33. Not only did you face this reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, you you stood along, You, you understood, you felt the camaraderie of fellowship in the body of Christ. You that joy of fellowship. Now, I know sometimes when we talk about fellowship, we think about a meal, right? Ben mentions the Tuesday night. I don't know what he calls it, potluck, pot blessing, covered dish, whatever it is. He invites you to it, and you think that's good fellowship. It isn't necessarily the meal that's good, but it's what we share in common in the midst of that. And he's saying there's something deeper than, than chicken and meatloaf. I know for some of us, it's hard to believe. (laughs) But they faced persecution. They faced suffering together. Bound them together. Their identity, it was no longer rich or poor or, or black or white or Roman or Jewish or any of those things. It was together in Christ, one and in the same. They understood and had felt previously the joy of That fellowship, and he says in verse, or in the next verse, and I think it's a remarkable statement, don't you? Not only were they publicly exposed and brought and so mistreated with others, he says, You had compassion on those in prison, in other words, you took care of them, you cared for them, but he says, And joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Who does that? I just Go in your house after church and just go drive away your lawnmower. How would you like that? I mean, I'm sure that you would not go, well, praise the Lord or thank God and, and go on. But he says there was something about this time in life. There's a, a measure of grace that was poured out on them. That in the midst of not only suffering ridicule and shame. But, but having their memberships revoked. I being cast out of the marketplace. And, and not a, a, a included in the circles of, of society. And, and all the things that they experienced. That they, they received it all with great joy. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. It's hard to go a full day with things not going your way with joy sometimes, right? Amen. And yet, they experience the unspeakable riches of the joy which Christ gives us. Remember he told his disciples, my joy I give you that your joy may be full. And that joy found in the obedience to the Father of loving one another, being in fellowship with one another and being in fellowship with the Father. Joy poured out unexplainable. Now, I don't know about you, but there's moments in my life where I am convicted when I look back and remember the joy which God has poured out in my life and I've experienced. There's times that it reminds me that even in difficulty, when I allow the overwhelming circumstances of life to, to pull me down, that there is joy found in the Lord. And He is not stingy with it. Unexplainable And yet undeniable joy. And he says you found it. You had it. Do you remember? I could ask you that even now. Do you remember that in your own life? Isn't it remarkable how we normally dwindle in our zeal for God? We never grow in it. How many times we go out the gate full throttle. You know like the guy running track who didn't know there was two laps. And so he's just running it all to win it on the first one. And then as we go around the second one, we, we have a little strength left. We have a little zeal left, little enthusiasm left. Well, he's saying look back and be encouraged, be reminded. Because it wasn't just you that did that. It wasn't just your strength and your ability and, and your might and your power and your resolve. It was the work of God's grace in you. It was his promises that sustained you. It was his joy flowing through you. It was his eternal hope which you set your minds on so you could say, take the lawnmower. I don't care. God is not going to make me cut grass in heaven or whatever. Notice what he says there at the end of verse number 34. You did this, not because you're just really pious and everybody wants to be like you. But he said, because you knew. What do you know this morning? He says, you knew you yourselves had a better position and abiding one. Cars rust. I'm learning that. Going on my fourth winter. I don't know how long it takes to be a veteran, but I think a lot more than four. But he says what you are looking for, what you've set your hope in, what stirs you, what keeps you going through the difficulties and the trouble and the sorrow and the pain and the loss of things and the loss of family and friendships and fellowship and, and what keeps you moving is realizing that one day Jesus will return and what he has promised you outlast it all. Outlast it all. Mind you of the words of Peter, an inheritance that's unfading, unyielding, reserved in heaven for us. I could tell you again, just as his grace was sufficient in those days in our past, as his grace is sufficient, as his strength was made perfect in our weakness, as he was worth living for yesterday, as, as all of this is true, the sermon that he's telling these people, he is still worth living for, his grace is still sufficient, and he will still sustain us. Do you believe that this morning? And isn't that the very thing that trials and burdens pull at? The very fabric of faith that tries to unravel? Well, I know, but that was then, you say. That was hard and that was difficult and you don't understand. Well, you're right. We lose sight of the fact that God never changes. That his promises are still sure. And so he calls these people, if you look at with me, not only to remember, but to remain Sure. To be confident. Look what he says here, verse number 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Now, let me just ask you a question What are you confident about? I guess I should be more general, shouldn't I? More specifically, when we speak about eternity and your destiny. Heaven and hell and life and death, those, those deep questions about life, where does your confidence rest? Paul puts it another way, and as he warns us about the, the Christianity, and he, he kind of says this opens up and shows us our confidence, and that is, what are you boasting in? what is the source and the substance of what you brag about and what you're you're resting in that's what he's saying when he says what do, what do you boast at one time he reminds his readers in Philippians that that he want to talk about boasting in the flesh I've I've got the market on it he boasted in his Jew, jewishness he boasted in the fact that he was a Benjamite, boasted that he was a Pharisee, boasted that he was a keeper of the law. That was his confidence. That's what he was resting in. That's what he's trying to tell us. That would have been appealing to their readers in Hebrews, who are very Jewish people, being pulled back to kind of rest and boast in Moses and all these other characters. Godly men. But they're not just source of our confidence. And it isn't us either. It isn't that we we stand and brag about, look look how good, look how good so-and-so is. And and we say stuff like, well, you know, I've done a lot of good in life. Realizing the fact that that rests our confidence in yourself. And let me just ask you if we could be honest. Isn't that a miserable place to be if it was all up to you? If you were the Savior of your own soul, if it took the best you could do all the time, 24-7, you think you could make it? The writer has for 11, 10 chapters been pointing us to one source of confidence, and that is in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away who Christ is and what he's done for you. Don't throw away your hope in, in, in him, The assurance that he gives us is only found in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this, and I I know time's going away and you guys are getting hungry. But let me just say this, that if you struggle with the assurance of your faith, the only place that you can find assurance is found in Jesus Christ. If you look up any other rock, through any other means, you'll come up empty. The Bible does not point us to any other figure, any other source than Jesus and Jesus alone. And he's not saying that look at what you did. You can do this all by yourself. He's saying look at your confidence and don't throw it away. Not your confidence of what you did, but the confidence of Him who who sustained you through this and produced this in you. Amen? Amen. Because it is in Christ that we have confidence. It is in Him that we have provision for sin. It is in Him we have an ever-priest before the throne of God. That's what he's been teaching us, that he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. He is the source of our strength now. He is our comfort, the fountainhead of all our joys. He has given us his own joy. He is at the very heart of what we hope for, the very one which we anticipate, not an event, not not something far off that we can put the pieces together. We wait for him. He is the very object of our worship, the very goal of our sanctification, the very heartbeat of all eternity will revolve around him. The Bible says there will be no sun because he himself and his glory will illuminate the whole place. I know some of you have been mesmerized by the moon the past few nights. Oh, imagine what it's going to be like when you look upon him. He is the giver of life and the sustainer. The object of our worship, he is our comfort in trouble. He is our good shepherd. He is all in all. He's on this church, don't lose sight of that. And I don't know what you're going through. I know some of you are going through a lot of battles, a lot of tough stuff in your life. And can I say that he is, well, he's still good. He's still able to secure you and sustain you. He still calls us not to to be absent from him, but come to him for strength and help in our time of need. I wish I had the giftedness and the talent to raise your affections, to love him more, but all I can do is say, don't throw away your confidence, because he is the only one who can sustain your hope. He is the only one that is worth putting your faith and trust fully in. And he is the one who says in Matthew 11, doesn't he come to me? All that he is, he offers to those who would come. You say, well, I'm broken and I'm weak and and I'm just really messed up. He says, that's all right. Those who are weak and weary come. It is coming to him that we find strength and help. It is coming to him that we find the resolution to our sin and our problems, and not away from him. You see, he says to this church, don't throw off your veil, zeal, your confidence in Christ. I remember what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Abraham had just turned down the offer of the king of Sodom and a reward for for that victory in battle that he did. And God comes to him, he says, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. He is our shield and our exceeding great reward still, beloved. And in our difficulty, he says, don't throw it away, but pick it up. Come to him, rest in him, speak to him, rely on him, lean on him, because he can hold you up. Now let me just give you one further thing as we close, just in passing. Because God is true, because his word is true, and his promises still remain, because we are moving to our hope and not away from it because our confident rest outside of ourselves to one who can sustain us and merits us. He says, let us press on believing, drawing near to God, holding on to the trust that we have in him, and meeting and encouraging and gathering together because he is faithful who has promised. Let us keep on. Why? Because he tells us in verse 37 again. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come. I like that, don't you? And he will not delay. Amen. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together. And Lord, I know that life is filled with both joys and sorrows mixed together many times, often in the body of Christ. Times we celebrate marriages and deaths and sorrow, and sickness. Yet through it all, your grace is sufficient and you sustain us joyfully beyond what we could fathom. And we know even in the midst of our own sorrows that at times we need to be reminded of the glorious truths, even the things in which we've read this morning the faithfulness of our Savior. And the promise of his soon return. And Lord I know that as we gathered here this morning. I don't take for granted that there's some here that don't know you. I pray even now as they listen. As they pray. God that they would turn to you. You promise us that they that would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray that they would call upon him. Who is faithful to all who come to him. He will no wise reject. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would never tire nor weary of coming to find strength and help. In Jesus' name, amen.